Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood, stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that he was being, what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god, and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Is anyone familiar with the Virginia Creeper Trail? Virginia Creeper Trail, it's in the western part of the state of Virginia. 
Uh, it's a trail that used to be a railroad that was built back in the industrial movement in the 1880s, but they converted this railroad into a trail. It's a 34-mile trail. It's actually mostly a biking trail. And it goes from White Top through Damascus to Abingdon, Virginia, where the trailhead is. Most people take a shuttle at Abingdon with their bikes up to the top at White Top to begin biking the trail because from White Top to Abington, it's a slow, slight downhill the whole way. Now, I've biked the trail. It is absolutely gorgeous. But when I think about that trail, my thoughts and feelings are drastically different depending on which way I think about biking that trail. If I think about biking it from white top down, the slow downhill, my heart is, my, my heart is filled with joy and, and hopefulness. But when I think about biking that trail from Abington up, the slight uphill, my heart's filled with sadness and with despair. If you view that trail as a metaphor for life, you have the same thoughts and feelings. The thought of a life running downhill with little resistance, with little opposition, generally brings feelings of happiness and hopefulness. But the thought of a life that runs uphill a life full of resistance, a life full of opposition. That brings feelings of sadness and of despair. And the reality is, because we live in a broken world, most of life is traveled uphill. The gospel of Jesus Christ completely flips that around such that the thought of a life that runs uphill with lots of resistance, lots of opposition, lots of trouble, actually brings hope. And you say, why? Why is opposition actually a source of hope? First, because opposition is part of God's plan. It's part of God's plan. Verse one, about that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Why? Well, this event takes place about 10 years after Jesus' death. The first wave of persecution against the church happened right after Jesus' death, about the, the stoning of Stephen is what produced it. But then it subsided, and there was a time of, of, of more peace, and then we get to this, what's called the second wave, or new wave of persecution, and this coincides with the gospel expanding to the Gentiles, as Peter brought it to Cornelius in chapter 10. The reason for the persecution is the Jews were bothered by the thought that, that Gentiles could be saved without becoming Jewish. They were bothered that, that Judaism, traditional Judaism, was being replaced by this Gentile Christianity. And Herod, who was the king, who was really just an extension of the Roman Empire, he understood this sentiment, and he was a power-hungry king. 
He wanted his subjects to be happy and approve of him. So he was looking to please the Jews. And that's what prompted him to execute James first. Now understand, James was one of the inner three of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John. So James is executed. And then we read in verse three, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, when he executed James, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So Peter is now arrested. And Herod did not execute Peter right away because it was a time of unleavened bread, meaning it was the Passover feast. So Herod was gonna wait until Passover was over, and then his plan was to bring Peter out of prison, publicly try him, and execute him. So here we have one of the pillar leaders of the early church, James, executed. And one of the other pillar leaders of the early church, Peter, about to get executed. Now, this is not the way the early church would have drawn things up. In their strategic planning session, if they even had such a thing, I guarantee they wouldn't have drummed up, hey, I think it would be best for the growth of the church if James gets executed and Peter gets imprisoned and then tried and executed. I think that will cause the church to grow. Of course not. The early church, upon this news of James's execution and Peter's imprisonment, they are shocked. They're disoriented. They're confused. Isn't that what opposition does? Isn't that what trouble does? We don't just nod at trouble and say, oh, okay, another day. No, it's disorienting. It's painful. And the early church was in pain. They were disoriented. In fact, as we'll see, it prompted an all-night prayer vigil in the local house church. That's how shocking this news was. But the reality is, James actually experienced the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to him. In Mark chapter 10, verse 39, Jesus said, the cup that I drink, referring to his impending death on the cross, you will drink, James. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Herod's execution of James was no surprise to God. It was a part of God's plan. Opposition is part of God's plan. We're not to be surprised by it or shocked by it. In fact, Peter, who escapes this time, but who would later be martyred, die, be executed, writes in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Opposition is a part of God's plan, which means that the goal of life is not to get free from opposition, from resistance, from struggle. Now, the gospel of the American dream would tell you that is the goal. The gospel of the American dream would say the goal is to get free from opposition, free from struggle, free from pain, free from resistance, right? And I would just say the religious version 
of the gospel of the American dream would say, and the way you get free from struggle and opposition is to have more faith. If you'll just have more faith, you'll get free. Now, here's the problem with that. James was executed. Peter wasn't. Are we to say, wow, Peter must have had more faith? Of course not. Of course not. The author of Hebrews chapter 11 explains it this way. In verse 34 of Hebrews 11, by faith, some escaped the edge of the sword. Verse 37, by faith, some were killed with the sword. So who escapes and who gets killed? Who is in a season of heavy opposition, heavy struggle, heavy trouble? And who's in a season relatively free from opposition? Who decides that? It's in the hands of our sovereign God. It's in the hands of our sovereign God. Opposition is a part of God's plan. The goal is not to get free from it. The goal in the midst of it is to glorify God. Whether you're in a season of heavy opposition in trouble, or whether you're in a season relatively free from it. It's the same goal. It's to glorify God in the midst of it. The miniseries Band of Brothers was a, a series that really captured the U.S. paratroopers, uh, their experience of invading Europe on D-Day during World War II. And the whole miniseries, Band of Brothers, was produced after they were able to interview a lot of the survivors. And so it depicts and it captures the, just the horror of war and the harshness of war and the, the heroism of the troops. And in one scene, Lieutenant Richard Winters is leading his troops into their, uh, their, their most celebrated feat of war, holding the Germans at the Battle of the Bulge. And one of the soldiers that was on the front lines pulls back from the front line and pulls Lieutenant Winters aside and says ominously, looks like you guys are going to be surrounded. And Lieutenant Winters, without hesitation, replies, we're paratroopers, Lieutenant. We're supposed to be surrounded. As followers of Christ, you're surrounded. Opposition is a part of God's plan. Why is opposition a source of hope? That's the first reason, because it's a part of God's plan. But second, opposition is a source of hope because it's an invitation to prayer. Verse five, so Peter was kept in prison but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer. After Peter was miraculously released from prison, verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now, the church was gathered to pray 
in light of James's execution and Peter's imprisonment. Now you hear that and go, of course, right? That's not a big deal. Church gathered to pray, crisis hits. But remember what time of day it is. This happened in the middle of the night. I mean, there's the depiction of what happens to, to Peter and how he gets woken up is there is some humor in the Bible. You know, it says that an angel of the Lord came and struck Peter. I mean, he was in a deep sleep. The angels, Peter, get up. And then it says when he got up, he thought he was dreaming, sleepwalking. He didn't even think it was real. He, I mean, he was still in a dream-like phase. And then it says, as they got to the edge of the city, to the entrance of the city, the iron gate opened on its own accord. This was a miraculous delivery. And so when Peter got delivered in the middle of the night, he went straight to the local house church, which was Mary's house, in the middle of the night. And what does he find there? The church is praying. An all-night prayer vigil going on. Opposition is an invitation to prayer. And not just prayer, but prayer together. Communal prayer together. And prayer in a certain way. Prayer in a certain way. We know from verse five that those gathered in Mary's house were praying for Peter. It says they were praying for him. What were they praying for him? We don't know. Maybe they were praying for his deliverance from prison. Maybe they were praying for strength and boldness for Peter in prison to testify to Jesus Christ in the face of persecution and death. We don't know, but I can pretty confidently say that I don't think that church was gathered in Mary's house praying that Peter would have a tasty meal in prison pretty confident their prayers were much more bold, earnest, kingdom-centered than that. They were in a battle, and they understood that the early church was in a battle. I'm going to revisit a quote I shared several months ago, because it's a good one, and it applies. It's by John Piper. He says this about prayer. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie not a domestic intercom for ringing up the butler to change the thermostat. It is a wartime walkie-talkie to call in firepower because the enemy is greater than we are. If you try to turn this into a domestic intercom to bring another pillow, it malfunctions, and you wonder why. It's not made to be an intercom. It's made to be a wartime walkie-talkie. Opposition is a gift from God because oftentimes it is the grace that rescues your prayers from becoming domestic intercom prayers. Domestic intercom prayer is all about getting free from the battle. Walkie-talkie prayer is all about strength in the middle of the battle and lives being saved in the middle of the battle. The Berlin Wall that separated capitalist West Germany from communist East Germany 
came down in 1989. It was actually built in 1961. And for three decades after that wall was built, East Germany and the people that lived in East Germany suffered horrendous oppression under that regime. Horrendous oppression. Seven years before the wall came down, seven years before the wall came down, there was a pastor in Leipzig, Germany, in East Germany, who started a Monday night prayer gathering to pray for peace. He started off with a handful of people showing up. But he kept it as a Monday night prayer gathering. Over the years, it grew, and it grew, and more people came to pray. Two days before the Monday prayer gathering on October 9th, 1989, the Communist Party, who had gotten wind that this gathering had grown, and now it was up towards thousands of people gathering, said, we will do whatever it takes, and we will use whatever means necessary to shut this thing down, which obviously struck fear into believers who were gathering. After they made that announcement in the days before that Monday gathering, uh, doctors came by the church to let pastors and leaders know that we will have hospital rooms open for those who suffer from gunshot wounds. That Monday, October 9th, 1989, the Communist Party had put barricades around the church to try to keep people out. It didn't work. Six to 8,000 people gathered in this church and began praying. It grew more and more gathered to where the leaders had to, had to walk the, the, the people out into the town square, past the headquarters of the secret police, with police stationed on roofs with guns, lining the streets with guns. And to everyone's shock, not one police opened fire because they had cousins, they had relatives in the mass. And once that chain of command was broken and the police didn't open fire, it was weeks later that the Berlin Wall came down. After it came down, one of the communist leaders was interviewed by a journalist and he made this very candid admission. He said this, we were prepared for every eventuality but not for candles and not for prayers. Eugene Peterson in his classic book, The Contemplative Pastor, describes prayer as a subversive activity that involves a more or less open act of defiance against any claim by the current regime of sin and evil. The opposition of sin and evil is an invitation the prayer. Now, you may hear this and say, but wait a minute. Wouldn't Peter have been released from prison even if the church wouldn't have gathered all night to pray? Wouldn't the Berlin Wall have come down in 1989 if the church hadn't gathered to pray? I mean, isn't God sovereign? That was the first point. The answer is yes. God is sovereign, but he doesn't just ordain the end. He ordains the means. He ordains the end, and he ordains the means. 
God does his work through means, one of which is prayer. One of which is prayer. God does his work through prayer. If you're not praying, God's gonna do his work. You're just gonna miss out. You're gonna miss out on the joy of being on the walkie-talkie, so to speak, and watching God work in miraculous and gracious and powerful ways. Here's the difference. I'll use the walkie-talkie wartime analogy. It's the difference between experiencing the victory of a battle when you're right in the middle of it with a walkie-talkie, bullets flying, talking through the walkie. It's the difference of experiencing the victory that way and experiencing the victory reading about it in a newspaper article hundreds or a thousand miles away. Opposition is an invitation to frontline prayer where you get to experience the gracious and powerful work of God right in the midst of the battle. So the question is, when you think about your prayers, are you generally speaking, and I ask this of myself as well, but are you generally pushing the domestic intercom button to get the pillows fluffed? Or are you talking into the walkie-talkie in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the opposition? Why is opposition a source of hope? Because it's part of God's plan, because it's an invitation to prayer, and finally, because it accentuates or highlights God's power over sin and evil. Peter's in prison. Verse six, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. As I said, he was chained to two soldiers in the prison cell, and there were two soldiers at the prison door guarding the prison. You say, why that detail? What's the importance of that detail? It's to emphasize that there was no human way Peter was getting out of this prison. There was absolutely no human way that Peter was getting out of the grip of Herod. No human way. This story reads very similar to the Red Sea crossing in Exodus. As salvation comes to Peter, but judgment falls on Herod. So salvation came to the Israelites, but judgment fell on Pharaoh. There's this supernatural deliverance that takes place. There's this supernatural salvation. The description of Peter getting out of prison is the angel comes, wakes him up, get your clothes on, walks him out. The iron gate opens on its own. I mean, this is supernatural. Absolutely supernatural deliverance and salvation. But it's not the only supernatural intervention in the story. There's another one. When Herod comes to get Peter to execute him, he's not there. So Herod gets angry. And he executes the soldiers that were supposed to be watching Peter. And then we read verse 20. 
Verse 20, we estimate occurred approximately five months later. So verse 20 starts about five months later. The people of Tyre and Sidon had offended Herod somehow. We don't know how, but had offended Herod, but they relied on Herod for their food. So they had to make peace. Verse 21, on an appointed day, that's the appointed day for this reconciliation to happen between the inhabitants of Tyre and Sidon and Herod. Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Verse 22, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. They're worshiping Herod as God, and he does nothing to refute it. In fact, if you know about Herod and his power-hungry nature, he was reveling in it. He was basking in it, that they were glorifying him as a God. Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. Now, there's actually a very credible historical account of what happened to Herod here. And it's from a very well-known, respected, first-century historian named Josephus. And Josephus' account of what happened to Herod lines up very well with Luke's biblical account, but they, they look at it a little differently. In Josephus' historical account, it says that Herod got a severe stomach pain, and five days later, he passed away. So from a human perspective, Herod got sick and died. From divine perspective, as Luke gives here, God struck him down in judgment. And this is the second supernatural event in the passage. There's the salvation of Peter, and there is the judgment on Herod. Salvation and judgment always go hand in hand. They are always two sides of the same coin. Salvation doesn't come without judgment. And so we see here, salvation comes to Peter, judgment falls on Herod. As I said with the Red Sea crossing, salvation comes to Israel, judgment falls on Pharaoh. Miracles in the Bible, when you read of supernatural things happen, miracles are never intended to be the thing that you become enamored over. The miracle itself is never the thing that you're supposed to focus on. The miracle is always a sign that's pointing to something. And so you don't get enamored at the miracle. You're to get enamored at what the miracle points to. It's like a, a road sign on the side of a road. You don't look at a road sign and become enamored with the sign. You become enamored or you focus on what that road sign communicates or what it points to. So what does this miracle Two supernatural events, salvation and judgment. What does this miracle communicate? What does it point to? It points to God's absolute power over sin and evil. Absolute power over sin and evil. Pharaoh had God's people imprisoned in Egypt. Herod had Peter imprisoned. And in the same way, sin imprisons you. It enslaves you. It oppresses you. And just like there was no way that Peter was getting out of this jail cell on his own, there is no way that you on your own can get out of the prison of sin. God has to 
rescue you from it. God has to save you from it. And to save you, he has to judge sin because salvation doesn't come without judgment. Now, if you bear your own sin, which everyone is born into this world bearing their own sin, and if you don't give God glory, right, which is the account of Herod's problem, let me just explain what that means. To not give God glory is just simply to live a life of independence from God. That's what we see in Genesis 3. It's a life of not worshiping God, acknowledging God. It's a life lived on your own, with your own resources. That's what it means not to give God glory, not to submit to him. That's what it means to bear your own sin. Sin is independent. Sin is independent. If you bear your own sin, judgment falls on you, just like it fell on Herod. But if Jesus bears your sin, then judgment falls on him. He's the one that gets struck down. He gets struck down so that you can live. He bears your sin and is struck down for it. He bears your not giving glory to God and is struck down for it, and you are saved. The sobering reality is that every person on the face of the earth, rich, poor, powerful, marginalized, healthy, not healthy, whatever the human categories are, Every person on the face of the earth will face God one day in judgment. Every person will face judgment. Only those who have trusted in Jesus will experience salvation. Only those who have put their trust in Jesus will experience salvation in realizing that Jesus took judgment for them. Opposition, and specifically the opposition of sin and evil, only accentuates God's power over it. He has expressed, shown, displayed his power over it through the cross and through the resurrection, through the death of Jesus and his resurrection. I love how this story ends. It's, you know, summaries, moral of the story, right? Sometimes they get really long. Sometimes when a, when a pastor doesn't land the plane on a sermon, it can get long. Well, there's a great summary to this story. Here it is. Verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. <laughs> After all of that, but the word of God increased and multiplied. I love how John Stott summarizes this story in Acts 12. He says, at the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders, at the end, he is himself struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. That is the story of the world in a nutshell. Sin and evil cannot, will not win the day. Sin and evil have been defeated, will be defeated. If you are here this morning and you are in a heavy season of opposition and trouble and resistance, and you're not feeling hopeful, but you're feeling full of despair, hear that. Hear the message that whatever is opposing you will not win the day, 
And you know that because Jesus has died and risen from the dead and is alive at the right hand of the Father. When it says the word of God is increasing, the word of God is John chapter one, Jesus Christ. The reason sin and evil can't win the day is because Jesus Christ is alive and he loves, he loves his brothers and sisters, the Father's children. So if you're hurting this morning, know you're deeply loved. And if you question whether God loves you, you only have to look back at the cross and what Jesus endured for you. He bore horrific judgment. He was struck down for you so you wouldn't have to be. You are loved. And because of that, even if it has gotten horrific in your circumstances or your situation, you can be assured that that situation, whatever it may be, whatever's opposing you, will not ultimately win the day. Now, judgment creeps in on Herod in the middle of time. You may not be vindicated immediately. But one day you will be vindicated and every bit of sin and evil that has opposed you will be judged. That is true. And it's in God's sovereignty of when he brings vindication and when he brings judgment and when judgment creeps into time versus the end of time, that's all in God's hands. But you can stand confident and assured and hopeful that whatever's opposing you will not overtake you because God loves you deeply and his son is evidence of that. Opposition is actually a source of hope because it's part of God's plan. It's an invitation to prayer. And it only accentuates his power over sin and evil. Let's pray. Father, every one of us in this place can identify with some degree of opposition, whether it's light or whether it's heavy. And in your sovereignty, you determine whether it's light or heavy. Father, by your spirit, would you bring us to a place of not being surprised or shocked by it, a place of quiet strength, knowing it's part of your plan in ways we can't understand, and then it's an invitation to prayer, to frontline prayer, to be engaged in the battle and to see you working in gracious and powerful ways, in the little ways and the large ways. And Father, may we be reminded that Sin and evil will not, cannot win the day. As much as it may appear to be winning by the physical eye, it cannot win the day because Jesus, you are in all authority at the right hand of the Father and you are alive and you are working out your plan to bring salvation and judgment to your world. That one day when you return, all sin and evil will be gone for good. And we will enjoy new heavens and new earth where there will be no more sin and evil. Only joy and delight and no misery. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper and as we prepare to, to taste this goodness, would you prepare our hearts? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.